Okay, how you doing, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the John Riley Project. This is episode number 328, where we cover San Diego County news headlines. How you doing? Welcome to the jungle. We're going to have some fun today. Um, we're going to get into a lot of different things here. But first of all, I want to say thanks for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. You know, this is a live stream, which means that you can participate. If you've got a question or comment, just type it in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. We're going to get into today um, updates on the San Diego Sports Arena housing project called Midway Rising, some of the changes they're making there. That's interesting to me. We're going to talk a little bit about El Cajon and Granny Flats and this new scheme they're coming up with out there. Uh, we'll talk about Escondido and cannabis and some of the fiscal issues the city of Escondido is dealing with. And then a couple of interesting comments here at a state level. We have a new senator, um, LaFonza Butler, who's replacing Diane Feinstein. We'll chat about that. And then finally, we're going to discuss a, a bill that Gavin Newsom, Governor Newsom, vetoed that had to do with unemployment benefits for strikers. So I think it's kind of interesting. Plus, we have our San Diego Community Forum where we can get your thoughts and comments. So if you've got some uh, interesting takes there, just drop the comment in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. We've already got a bunch of social media stuff queued up, talking about the California bullet train, the California minimum wage for fast food workers, government grocery stores, automation and robots in business. Thomas Sowell and San Diego Taxis and Uber. So we've got a ton here for you today. Thanks again for joining me on another John Riley Project, episode 328 of this podcast. Okay, let's get started here. And let's talk about Midway Rising, okay? And so Midway Rising, of course, is the name of the new development that's going to replace all of the blight at the San Diego Sports Arena site. It's not just the sports arena itself and that really big parking lot, but there are a number of other buildings that are just to the east of it that are on city property. And those are going to be blown out too. I know there's Dixie Line Lumber is there. There's a, a boxing gym that's there. There might even be a Goodwill that is part of that land development. And they're going to blow all that up and put in housing. And, you know, this has gone to multiple ballots. Well, now there have been some changes in the plan. And boy, the San Diego City Council members are not happy about this. Um, so the deal is, is that they've got all these different categories of housing planned for it. And the world's changed since that was approved. I mean, we've seen interest rates balloon. Um, the economy is shifting a bit. Excuse me. And and finally, they discovered this huge sewer line underground that they didn't know about, which is incredible to me. So um, so anyways, they've decided to take some of these, you know, the, some of these housing op projects off the table. They even are taking a 200 room hotel um, off the table as well. And um, and 250 units for residential units for middle income housing and People are freaking out about this at the city council level. Um, according to Marnie Van Wilbert, or excuse me, Ron, Marnie Vaughn Wilbert, who is the representative that's right next door here, she covers Penasquitos and Rancho Bernardo, and she said, "You're telling us." That this venture that has two billionaires at the helm, who between them 
own four or five national sports franchises, can't figure out how to build 250 middle income housing units for us? We have a homelessness crisis. We have an affordability crisis. We pick your team because we believed in you. You have billionaires at the helm. Please figure this out and put the 250 units back in and help us get what we deserve from our property. <laughs> what do you think of this? This this to me is incredible. Um, hey, first of all, yeah, there are two billionaires, and that's who's on the screen there. Stan Kroenke, who is the owner of the LA Rams, and he also owns the Colorado Avalanche and the Denver Nuggets in the NBA and the NHL. And then um, and then another partner of his is, is Jerry Jones, you know, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, because he's going to be involved in this project as well. I think Stan Kroenke has about a 90% share of this, because when he bought in, you know, sports fans of San Diego were all excited. Hey, maybe we'll get an NBA team or an NHL team. But it's interesting how that just because they're billionaires, that means that they need to sacrifice themselves um, to serve the needs of other people. I mean, to me, this is ridiculous coming from Marnie Von Wilbert's uh, position here, because these are business people and what they're trying to do is what's best for them. And yeah, they had an agreement that they signed and apparently, you know, there's low income and mid income, which I'm going to define in a minute, but the low income portion of this is locked in and it's not negotiable, but the middle income and the hotel is, I mean, it's, it's not something that has to go to a voter uh, vote. And what was interesting is, is that Penny Moss, who is the San Diego real estate department, uh, head or manager, she said those scrapped elements, the middle income housing and the hotel are not required. And she didn't really seem all that unfazed by it. Um, but the council, boy, they were angry because, you know, the council are driven by political outcomes, not necessarily what's best from a business perspective. And then in the quote, it's funny how she said, uh, Marty Von Wilbert said, you have billionaires at the helm. Please figure this out and put the 250 units back in and, quote, help us get what we deserve for our property. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't deserve that. I mean, yeah, that was part of the negotiation, but it wasn't the part that was locked in contractually. So you're getting, you know, you, the city of San Diego, you're getting what you deserve from this contract, from this project, because this, these private developers are buying the land from the city and you've already pre-negotiated certain elements of this are locked in. So this plan there, the city of San Diego, Marty Von Wilbert, you're already going to be getting what you deserve. Now you wanted some bonus things that they were hoping to include, but you know, business and these kinds of projects shift and change. I mean, this is so similar in my opinion to what's going on here in my hometown of Poway with the farm project and the, and the, and the evolution there. And a lot of the voters being really angry, unlike the Poway project, this one had certain elements locked in and other elements were not locked in here in Poway. We have a development called the farm where they're putting in housing and they are switching gears. They're getting rid of tennis courts and putting in pickleball courts. Well, that makes sense. I mean, the, the world has changed in, in some of these recreational uh, activities, but the owner of the, or the, the, the lead spokesman of the project, Kevin McNamara wants to put in a really big um, 
what is it called? Uh, Fitness Elite, I think it's called, or is it Elite Fitness? Wants to put that in a big workout gym that's that's outside the scope of what was originally approved by voters. And people here are really upset about that. But in this case, they're in the San Diego Sports Arena Midway Housing. They are going to follow through on the commitment to give the voters what they promised. Now, Let's break this down about what we mean by mid-income and low-income. So this project includes 2,000 affordable units. Now, affordable housing is what people usually are clamoring about. And this will go to people for families making 80% or less of the area median income. And these are deed-restricted, which means locked in. That means that those parcels of land can only be used for people that make 80% or less of the median income in the area. Now, the middle income tier, which is the part that they've decided to take off the table, this is for units for, this includes units for families that earn between 80 and 120% of the median income in the area. And and oh, by the way, I think they're saying that when they did the survey, the median income in the area, I think from a household perspective, is $87,000. So the low income places are going to be retained, which will be mostly households earning, what would that be? Probably less than about 70000 And those that are earning between 70000 and uh, what would it be? Maybe about a hundred and ten thousand um, or so would be in the middle income and those are the ones that they're not going to commit to that now what do you think of this do you think um, the do you think the, the the voters of San Diego are getting screwed over by this what's your thoughts um, now obviously things have changed in the world of real estate the interest rate for mortgages is what like Seven percent, at least six. I think I've seen some cases it's as high as seven. And that makes a huge difference on how you finance these properties, how you finance the development. And then, of course, when these homeowners come in, how much of a house they can afford. I mean, it makes a huge difference on the payment. And it's shifted and it's changed some of the economic model. Um, now, uh It is interesting, as an aside, um, that you might be saying, well, why are interest rates so high? Well, the reason interest rates are so high is because inflation grew so dramatically. They've had to increase interest rates to attempt to cool off the economy. And why did inflation balloon? Well, that's because the federal government and the state government's response to the COVID pandemic, where they printed $6 trillion and just spread it throughout the economy, totally devaluing the dollar and also shutting down elements of our economy that restricted production. And when you added those two up, that caused prices to go up. And so it's interesting, though, how it's a government related, it's a government caused problem, the inflation, and then the the government or the quasi government agency, the Federal Reserve responds by increasing interest rates, which then create greater expenses for homeowners or for people that are buying homes. And now it's having this cascading effect on this particular project. Um, this is, is fascinating to me. Now, according to um, 
what's this? Vivian Moreno is another one of the council members. She was also upset. And she said, this is an extremely important project to ensure that we are building housing that people in the middle income categories like teachers, firefighters, police officers and others can realistically have access to. And I feel that we are leaving them behind with this project. Um, <laughs> isn't it funny how they when they always bring up these woe begotten, hardworking people, whether they're teachers or firefighters or police officers, you know, they always evoke these people that are government workers that are supposedly working for the common good, you know, and they're the ones that are going to have to sacrifice. And we need to do what we can for the common good. And these these workers represent the common good. And they just keep pulling on that, you know, lever. Um, but that's because we have Democrats that are leading the city council in San Diego. I think eight of the nine, if not all of them, are Democrats. And they go back to a lot of these sort of um, socialist ideas that we got to we have to protect the little guy. We've got to protect the common good. But the reality is, is that what exists at the sports arena now is a disaster. It's not good for the common good in the first place. I mean, I go down there quite a bit because I have a client that's right near the sports arena. And, you know, that area has been, it is, it is blight. I mean, there's homelessness there. Um, there's a lot of trash and a lot of, um, um, well, you know, like soiled clothing from the homeless people that are there. Um, the the pavement on the sports arena lot is a disaster. I mean, it's just loaded with potholes. The sports arena itself is a dump. I remember reading about the 1975 NCAA championship. It was UCLA and John Wooden's last year. And he was complaining that the sports arena was a dump then in 1975. And here we are almost 50 years later. So this whole project, when it's upgraded, is going to be just fine. Now, according to another councilman, uh, councilperson, Jennifer Campbell, she said, we have to realize that when you build something, anything, no matter what it's on, a half an acre or 48 and a half acres, you run into stuff you didn't expect. This is a blighted neighborhood that needs to be upgraded. And it, it will be beautiful. It will be pleasant to live in. It's okay. We're going to be all right. And I think she's right. This is going to work out fine. You know, I don't know if they're going to replace the 25, was it 250 or was it 2,500 homes, did I say, that are going to be in the the, um, the middle income? I think it's 2,500. So I'm guessing those are just going to be replaced by market rate housing. So there won't be any subsidies. There won't be any restrictions on who or can, can't live in there, who's qualified to live. They're still going to be building all this housing because there's such huge demand for it. Um, but they did also encounter something really unusual. They discovered this 96 inch, which is like eight feet wide sewer pipe that wasn't in the original drawings and they can't apparently they can't build on that and they've got to have that as open space and so that's making them move the hotel which was going to be where that sewer pipe is and so they've had to make some revisions so what do you think with this project um i am personally very 
excited about this project for a number of reasons. One, we have a housing crisis. We need more housing. Number two, that area is blighted. Um, that area could really use an upgrade, um, you know, whether it be for housing or for the sports arena. But that whole area just needs to be just cleansed. And that's going to happen. Um, and then I'm hopeful that the new arena, which will be a great asset to the to the San Diego community, whether it's for sports or concerts and other forms of entertainment, there's an outside shot. You know, we might be in the position to get an NBA or an NHL team. And to me, that's really exciting, too. I'm generally a big thumbs up on this project. And they're also going to, you know, build these. They're going to be higher than the 35 foot limit. And that was part of the deal that the voters approved. Okay, so um, enough about that. Now, we're going to get into a bunch more stuff here. I want to talk about El Cajon and Escondido and Gavin Newsom. But before we do, um, just want to let you know, if you want to learn more about the John Riley Project, and you can go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, and you get all of our episodes up there. And really, what is the John Riley Project? To me, for the way that I frame it, it's sort of this passion project that I have that's sort of outside the scope of what I do in my regular day job. So, um, and it's really three different things. So part one of it is this podcast, which I enjoy discussing San Diego topics. I enjoy having San Diego politicians and other community leaders and San Diego authors and San Diego business people I have on this podcast frequently as guests. Love all that. The second part of this is another podcast I do with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. You know, of course, the legendary play-by-play man for the NFL Chargers and Seahawks also did play-by-play for the USC Trojans, San Diego State Aztecs, Arizona State Sun Devils, the um, Phoenix Giants back when they were a AAA team. So Hacksaw and I do two episodes a week as part of this podcast, and in, and I – from my own kind of angle, I kind of have it all within the John Riley Project umbrella. And I also have a number of e-commerce sites that are part of this that I'm working on to try to get to self-fund the project. And that includes Happiness 76, which is a store that I built that's all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which are, our, are kind of our overarching higher purpose. And I've got Poway Store and a couple of other things cooking there. So if you want to learn more, go to my website, John Riley Project. Okay, let's move on down the road and let's talk a little bit about El Cajon. That's a picture there of El Cajon Mayor Bill Wells. And they've, are, they've cooked up a scheme in El Cajon that's actually similar to something that our mayor, Steve Voss and Poway have proposed that kind of vanished. The idea was proposed and never seemed to get traction. And it was this idea that the city... In this case, El Cajon, and they've approved this. The city of El Cajon will be making loans to El Cajon homeowners if they build a granny flat on their property and agree to rent it out to low-income people. Now, what do you think of this? This is, is, is kind of a complex issue, and that's why I wanted to take some time to break it down. And it's slightly different than what Poway had proposed. But let's go through this. Um, El Cajon has approved $600,000 for an ADU loan program. ADU stands for Accessory Dwelling Unit. We also call those granny flats. These are like the little 800 to 1,000 square foot houses that are put on a separate concrete pad in someone's back property, in their backyard, where, you know, your in-laws or your, or your grandparents could live there if they wanted to. 
But a lot of people in San Diego are seeing this as an opportunity to build housing and rent it out and be able to monetize their own property and make a little bit of money while also helping some people find housing. So recipients of this plan will need to offer their new units at below market rate to qualify for the loan. So what's the going rate for rent? I mean, I think we were noting that in North Park, it was 2400 a month. El Cajon, I would imagine, would be a little bit less expensive. So let's pretend it's 2000 a month. So maybe these are going to need to be rented for around 1500 a month or so. So on the surface, you might say, hey, this sounds good. Um, the city is doing what it can to help out, and they're going to provide more affordable housing units in El Cajon. This should work out pretty well, right? Um and, 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 oh, by the way, they're already getting this money from the state of California. It's coming from this planning grants program, which is really meant to kind of address homelessness and increase affordable housing. Now, a little more details about the loan and who gets it. The loans are available on terms between five and 50 years, and people can lease these um, granny flats at affordable rates to renters whose household income is at or below of the area median income. So 87,000 is the median. So 150% of that would be what? It'd be about 130 grand or less, roughly speaking. If you earn 130 grand or less, you could qualify for these. Um, But they're only providing $600,000, which means this is going to be able to help six property owners. It's essentially six property owners each getting $100,000 in loans. So on the surface, this is only addressing six units, okay, which we need so much more housing than this. It's ridiculous. But what do you think of the plan? You might think, hey, maybe this is a good idea. Now, I don't like this idea. Um, I do like the idea of more granny flats, more accessory dwelling units, creating more housing. I'm fully on board with that. But the city should not go into business with property owners. The city should not be a bank that makes out loans. Just as the federal government shouldn't be loaning uh, corporations money, the city of El Cajon, or we had even discussed this in Poway, the city of Poway shouldn't be making loans to homeowners either. That's not the role of government. The role of government, in my opinion, is number one for local government is public safety, police, fire, perhaps ambulance if it's part of the fire department, and then infrastructure, which is typically roads and water and sewage and and parks and that sort of thing. And then everything after that is priority three and below. But the city government is not a bank. It shouldn't be making loans out to these people in the first place. Um, but here we've got a case now of the city essentially wanting to go into business, providing loans. I assume they're going to want to interest back on that loan from the homeowners as they should, but you're only going to be able to pick and choose six winners. Imagine if there's 10, 20, 50 property owners that want to get in on this. Well, who do you pick? So you end up having the politicians or their bureaucratic staff go through this process of picking winners and losers on who can apply for this. That in and of itself, I don't think is right, because I think people should have equality under the law. It shouldn't be a lottery system or some privilege, you know, who who you who you're friends with kind of thing. The second part of this that's interesting 
is that it is different than the Poway one. Now, the Poway one, their plan was originally that the city was going to loan the property owner the money. The property owner would build the ADU or granny flat, and then the property owner would, would rent it out to low-income people at a below-market rate. But then that money would be split. The revenue share would be split where the, the city would get some of it and the property owner would get what was left. So maybe the city got 20% of that rent payment as a means to pay down the loan. But then you've got a case here where, yeah, the city is participating in the revenue stream, further putting government and property owners in business with one another, which I, again, I don't think is right. So at least they've avoided this. They're just saying, okay, it's a loan. You pay back the loan. It doesn't matter how much you're, what percentage of the take, you know, the city gets. Now, if they want to do this right, the right way to do this is just to deregulate granny flats, to deregulate accessory dwelling units, ADUs, make it easier to build these, make it easier to get permits approved, make it easier to get these things through the city red tape. That's how you do it. And if you need to use some of that grant money to expedite that process, then so be it. Um, But here, you're only going to encourage six people. (laughs) And there might be 20, 50, 100 property owners that might want to participate in this. So only some people get the incentive and others don't. Some people get the favors and others don't. I don't think this is a good idea. They should just deregulate it and just allow people to build more housing. What do you think, El Cajon? (laughs) El Cajon! Give me a call, El Cajon. La Mesa, Santee. (laughs) I'm channeling my hacksaw here. Um, Okay, let's move on. Got more to cover. I want to talk a little bit about Escondido and Gavin Newsom and our new California senator and some of our striking workers. And plus, we've got the San Diego Community Forum. But hey, I want to put this plug in because I like to do this between segments. If you like what we're doing here with the John Riley Project, if this is something that maybe you might want to support, you can and you can do so voluntarily. Just go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. And up at the top menu bar, you'll see a donate page. Go to my donate page and you can donate money and five bucks, 10 bucks, one time. Maybe you can donate a certain amount per month to kind of help me out. And what will I use the money for is pretty much just promoting the podcast, trying to build a larger audience. Um, and, you know, I, I already do this with other podcasters. There's one podcaster who I, I love, who I think is tremendous. His name is Jerome Brook. I voluntarily give him 25 bucks a month because I believe in what he's doing and it's my way to support him. It's a win-win relationship. He provides great content for me and then I reciprocate and make a voluntary donation. If you'd like to do the same, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com because, you know, we cover local content, local news in San Diego County and it's your chance to get some of that content. I know there's consolidation going on in news media, local news media. So here's another outlet, another alternative for local news coverage. Okay, let's uh, go from El Cajon to Escondido. There's Dane White, the mayor of Escondido. He was just featured on Fox News, by the way. Uh, Dane White is, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm really digging Dane White. I really like this guy. I follow him on Twitter. He and I have very similar perspectives on things, so that's why I'm liking him. And he's a Republican. I'm not. But he's all about deregulation and and streamlining government and 
you know, calling out a lot of the BS in the federal government. And I like that. But Dane White, by the way, also was homeless. And now he's the mayor of of Escondido, which is a real success story. So we've covered this topic in Escondido where they're having a fiscal crisis there. They're not generating enough money. And as a result, they've had to slash programs. It got so bad that they're barely even using their maintenance dollars to clean up the public restrooms in the city parks. And the city parks got so disgusting that Amy Landers, an Escondidan who has a professional cleaning business, she was going in voluntarily cleaning these bathrooms, sometimes spending four to five hours in one bathroom to do a deep clean because the city wasn't maintaining their own property. Um, The city of Escondido is in trouble. Um, They need more money or they need to cut spending because they have a structural deficit. They're losing money every year. Um, So they are now considering cannabis, you know, pot, marijuana. They're considering selling marijuana in Escondido so it can be taxed so they can have some new revenue coming into the city. They're also looking at taxing uh, people that are in hotels with their transient occupancy tax. Now, Apparently, there was a workshop in Escondido, and they had four strategic goals that came out of this. And I like this. I like how this, they plan it out. They've got clear goals. And the four strategic goals are, goals are eliminating the structural deficit as the number one goal in Escondido, which is great. The, the, that city government needs to be break even or better. Number two, they're going to improve public safety, which, again, is the number one thing I think city government should do. Number three, they want to increase retention and attraction of residents. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, they want more people moving in and staying in Escondido. And then finally, um, they want to encourage more housing development, which, again, right on. That's what we need to do. You build more houses, people will move in and stay in Escondido. So I think these are all great goals. But- you know, there's a budget deficit that's really bad. So apparently they closed an $11.3 million budget staff uh, budget deficit. But staff has warned that deep cuts would need to happen if additional revenue isn't found. The city's $59.6 million reserve fund, you know, kind of their rainy day fund, will be eliminated by 2030 if nothing changes. So they've got a real problem here. So one of the things they're considering in Escondido is having a cannabis dispensary to provide marijuana, whether they use it for medical reasons or they use it recreationally. And we're seeing a lot of cities around San Diego do this. I mean, San Diego, the city of San Diego has opened up. We had a big controversy in Rancho Bernardo about a cannabis dispensary. All of those shrieks and blockades and everything locals were trying to do to prevent it has broken down. And they're finally going to put that in, in the old El Torito location in Rancho Bernardo, but they're putting in, um, uh, they're putting in cannabis dispensaries in Lemon Grove and La Mesa and national city and a lot of other places in San Diego. And now Escondido is considering it. What do you think now is what is cannabis? It's 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 pot. It's marijuana. It's a, it's a it's a it's a prescription drug for some people, or it's just a medicine in general that helps people find peace and calm and tranquility. It helps people reduce stress. It has side benefits of helping people with glaucoma or people that suffer from seizures. It's. And it's massively safer than alcohol. So it's crazy that this is that this is um, 
banned in the first place. But one of the city council members uh, was already warning people. His name is Mike Marasco in Escondido. Um, and he reiterated his hardline opposition to regulating cannabis. He says, I hope there's at least three of you who will vote for it because I'll always vote no. So <laughs> he, there's no way that he's going to vote for this because a lot of kind of conservatives, a lot of old school conservatives don't want any of that, that uh, wacky weed, that marijuana, that any of that, uh, you know, <laughs> that crazy pro- uh, stuff that them hippies smoke. They don't want that in their city. And there's always this resistance. So you might be thinking, well, how much money could they actually make from this? And they were looking at Vista and Oceanside because they had similar um, um, initiatives that they've passed to allow cannabis to be sold there. And they said that in Escondido, they'll make between the city will make anywhere between 24000 and four and a half million dollars from a cannabis tax. Well, that'll help. I mean, probably not as much as you'd think. But, you know, in, in the end, it's, you're getting Escondido people to pay for it, you know, or at least the people that travel in Escondido to buy to buy cannabis. But Really, if you're selling a medicine that's meant to help people, you shouldn't be looking at that as a cash cow, as a revenue generating opportunity for the city. I mean, you're already going to make money on it, I would assume, as sales tax. Why does there need to be this additional tax on cannabis as well? It's a medicine. And most medicines, I think, are not allowed to be taxed in the first place. Isn't that right? They're one of the things that the sales tax doesn't apply to. Now, they're looking for other schemes to raise money. They want to put in the transient occupancy tax, which is they call it a TOT tax. This is essentially a tax on people that use hotel rooms. Now, it also applies to people that use rental cars and things. But for Escondido's purposes, it's really just for uh, for hotels. But should there be a transient occupancy tax in Escondido? I mean, I've always thought of that as taxation without representation. I mean, these are people that don't live in the city, yet they're being taxed to fund the city. Now, do do people that are traveling, that are tourists, that come into the city, that are using hotel rooms, are they using city infrastructure? Yeah. They're paying for it, a lot of them, through the sales tax. But they don't get a vote or they don't get to vote on the representatives that implemented the tax. I always think the transient occupancy tax is taxation without representation, but it's a frequent go-to because it taxes people that don't live in the city. It taxes, quote, the other guy. <laughs> That's why city of San Diego loves it. I remember one time uh, we went to uh, spring training in Arizona and I checked my bill, this is like 10 years ago, on our rental car. And, you know, there's all these extra taxes and fees that are added on. And one of them was, a uh, they called it a spring training tax, which was essentially, it was a TOT tax, a transient occupancy tax for people flying into Phoenix to go watch the baseball games. They were charging them more to use rental cars. But what was interesting is, is that they were charging everybody who used a rental car. So if you flew into, into Escondido, or excuse me, into Phoenix for a golf tournament or for some business meeting or just to visit family, you were paying a spring training fee for stadiums, even though you didn't go to the stadium in the first place, which is nuts. They should just tack that on to the, to the price of the tickets at these stadiums. But Escondido is considering a, a transient occupancy tax. What do you think of that? They're also considering a parcel tax. 
And the parcel tax would help fund the library. And um, that, that's another angle that they're considering. Now, you know, they've gone to the well twice to try to increase the sales tax by three quarters of a percent. But the voters always voted down. <laughs> so it's always people don't. It's funny how this works is that in a lot of cities, people don't want to be taxed. They want other people to pay the tax. That's why in the state of California, whenever they increase taxes, they want to increase taxes on the rich. They want to increase taxes on business, but don't increase taxes on me. <laughs> and Escondido is kind of looking at this similarly. They, they don't want to increase the sales tax. You can't increase the property tax unless you agree to have like another layer to it or you agree on a parcel tax. They're just not making enough money in Escondido. Now, I like their idea of increasing housing because then there's more people paying property tax. And by having more housing and having it sell at current prices, you're going to have the revenue from that property tax income will be greater than people that have been sitting on their house for 20 or 30 years. So that's good. There are things that Escondido can do to, to increase more housing, to encourage more housing, like deregulating and making it easier to build, which would then in turn increase revenue without having to go to a specific parcel tax. But notice how, you know, here they're talking about the library, you know, because that'll pull on the heartstrings of people. We need a library and Everyone loves libraries, but libraries cost money, but they serve that one up as the thing to kill. And if you don't pay us more money, we're going to have to maybe not have a library. Well, at least they're trying to get their priorities straight. You know, public safety, one, infrastructure, two. Libraries, you know, are a nice to have, but not a must have for a city, especially when there's already a county of San Diego library system. I mean, we have a library here in the city of Poway. As far as I understand it, it's a county library. It is run by the county. Now, I think it's on city land. The city may own the building, but it's staffed by workers that come from the county. That's my understanding. So cities themselves don't necessarily have to have libraries. But what do you think of the cannabis tax in Escondido? I know there's a lot of old school Republicans, conservatives that are in Escondido. Now, in my opinion... They should be letting in cannabis dispensaries in the first place, regardless if they tax it. But what they do need to do is just find ways to spend less money and find ways to increase revenue without like adding layers upon layers upon layers of additional taxes on Escondidans. What do you think, Escondido? Let me know in the live chat. Um, I'll get your comments and questions on Facebook and YouTube. Okay, moving on down the line, and we've got a couple more things. I'm going to broaden the scope a bit and talk about California. But if you want to learn more about what we're doing here, the John Riley Project, you know, I often reference my hometown of Poway, the city and the country. I've got a couple of Poway websites. You can go to PowayIsAwesome.com. PowayIsAwesome.com, you can download um, – they're like wallpaper backgrounds for your desktop computer, for your mobile device, or for your phone. They're all optimized in size of various parts of the city of Poway, the city and the country of Old Poway Park, of Lake Poway, of Iron Mountain, you know, the train depot at Old Poway Park. A lot of cool photos. If you want to celebrate the city and the country, go to Poway is Awesome. You can download these for free. 
But by just providing your email, um, you'll get the download for free. Go to PowayIsAwesome.com. You can also go to PowayStore.com where you'll find a, a, a large selection of Poway shirts, Poway hats, Poway coffee mugs, and other fun things. So go to PowayStore.com. Okay, um, let's get and talk about two things here at the state level, and we'll just touch on these briefly. The first is Gavin Newsom has vetoed this plan, and, and this is interesting because striking workers, and you know, there's all kinds of strikes that are going on. I mean, Kaiser just went on strike. Some of their nurses and some of their um, staff at Kaiser. There's a broad healthcare strike going on. We're just coming out of the writer's strike. You know, SAG-AFTRA. Um, that is finally opening back up, and now the writers are going back to Hollywood, which is going to be great for the entertainment industry. But there's there, the UAW is on strike in many parts of the Midwest. But one of the things that was a bill that went through the state legislature in the Assembly and the Senate in Sacramento, and the Democrat majority voted for it, and it was to provide unemployment benefits to people that are on strike. And Gavin Newsom vetoed it. What do you think of this? Now, should a worker who is voluntarily choosing to strike be eligible for unemployment benefits. Well, you know that if, if you quit a job, you're not entitled to unemployment. You're only entitled to unemployment if you are if you are essentially laid off or there's a furlough or there's some reduction in business that requires you to be released. But if you, of your own accord, say, take this job and shove it and I'm, I'm out of here, you can't get unemployed because you voluntarily left. Now, workers that are striking have voluntarily walked away from that job. So I think here Gavin Newsom did the right thing because they shouldn't be entitled to unemployment because they are choosing not to work. They are the ones refusing to go to work. They already have an agreement. They already have an agreed upon pay rate. And, you know, I mean, imagine you and your job and you were in grudge mode with your boss because you wanted a raise and you said, fine, I'm just not showing up for work. Well, you would get replaced as you should. But it's weird how workers that are on strike have special privileges and benefits that non-union people have. Because if you aren't in a union and you decide I'm not coming in because I don't like my work conditions, well, then you just quit and find another job which is what you should do if your employer is not giving you what you want. But here, you know, a lot of kind of leftists, especially in the state of California, kind of all are about the struggle of the worker and the, and the unions, and they want to give them special benefits. It's interesting that Newsom said he wouldn't do this. Now, at one level, I was thinking, well, maybe he's saying this because he's considering running for president. You know, there's still an outside shot that he might run for president in 2024 because Joe Biden is going to, you know, be unable to be president because of his age or his health. Um, and he could be the savior for the Democrats. If he doesn't run in 2024, Gavin Newsom almost definitely will run in 2028. But according to Newsom, he said that the state's unemployment trust fund is already nearing 20 billion in debt. So his decision here isn't really based on any principles about who should or not get unemployment, but more on he, he's trying to like address fiscal stability in the state of California. So on that level, I give him credit. He's made the right decision there. But what do you think?
should, you know, and, and it makes it kind of wonder, you know, are striking workers, are they still technically employed, but just on leave or are they unemployed? Uh, it, it's this gray zone. Now, if, if you don't show up and work, I think a, a company has a right to fire you and replace you with someone else. You don't get to keep your place in line. You don't get necessarily get to keep your job. But unions always have these special privileges that are protected by law that non-union workers don't get. I'm, I'm a believer that we should be have equality under the law, that government shouldn't treat different people with different rules, that we should be treated equally before the law. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think unemployed workers should be Excuse me. I don't believe striking workers should be eligible for unemployment. But in my opinion, Newsom did the right thing here. Okay, we got one more topic here in California before we get to the San Diego Community Forum. And this is the replacement for Dianne Feinstein, our senator in California. And of course, Dianne Feinstein tragically passed away. She was 90 years old. She had been kind of a warrior in the state of California. She was the mayor of San Francisco. I remember... I think I was in high school when uh, Mayor George Moscone and Harvey Milk were both assassinated. Um, and Mayor Feinstein, I don't know if she was appointed to become mayor immediately or if she went through an election and, and kind of succeeded Moscone. But she served there as the mayor of San Francisco for most of the 80s. And then around 1990 or so, she went and made the leap into the Senate. She's been there 30 years. But she was she was 90 years old when she passed away, and she was clearly in poor health. I mean, her health had declined so much that her daughter or daughter-in-law had power of attorney to make decisions over her personal life. But yet she was still expected to vote because she had a powerful position in the Senate. Um, that was odd. It was it was the Democrats had called for her to resign for a while, and she should have. But tragically, she is she's gone. And now Gavin Newsom went into the well and he said right off the bat, I'm going to definitely appoint a black woman. Kind of like how President Biden made that claim when he appointed the, the newest Supreme Court judge. He, he made it clear from the get go. I think he'd said so in the campaign. It's going to be a black woman. And so Newsom did the same and, and appointed LaFonza Butler to, to, to su succeed Diane Feinstein. And people are like immediately going, who is she? Well, rather than talking about her credentials, the first thing they always say is she's black, she's a woman, and she's LGBTQ. You know, she like checks the box for a number of these kind of political identity groups that people on the left and on the right are so hung up on. Um, it seems like that was the, the dominant reason that she was selected. So she's going to fill this position because they're going to have an irregular election in November of 2024. And we already know there are a number of very prominent uh, Democrats that are running for that job, including Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter, and Congresswoman Barbara Lee. They're all three are Democrats. Those are the three favorites. And I think Schiff and Porter will probably be at the top of that list in terms of popularity. But um, – I, I thought this was interesting that, number one, apparently there was a poll released on Monday that Butler's when Butler's appointment, before Butler's appointment was announced, California voters generally favored appointing a black woman to, to fill in Feinstein's seat. 
So people were already making this decision. We want a black woman. And I have nothing. I don't have any problem with black women. But one's gender and one's skin color shouldn't be the reason that we pick them or not pick them. I mean, we certainly don't want discrimination against blacks, but we also shouldn't want to have discriminations that favor blacks. You know, the same as with gender or anything else. You know, government should look at people based on their their background, their skills, their experience, their qualifications for the job. That's the primary. Um, now, what was interesting here that I didn't realize is that not only is there going to be an election in November of 2024 to find a permanent replacement for Diane Feinstein for a full six-year term, but they're going to have an also another election in March of 2024 when we have our primary and that is going to be to elect someone to fill two months of the job, which will probably be September and October or maybe October and November of 2024. So this appointment of LaFonza Butler is only going to, to go through from now until, what would it be, the end of August or the end of September of 2024? I'm not sure exactly how the calendar breaks. I didn't realize that there would be two elections. Now, on one level, this is a, a great thing for the candidates. You know, they're all excited because now they can spend more money or better yet, they can go raise more money because now they have two elections to fundraise for. And some of these uh, candidates have already, you know, maxed out how much money they can raise from a lot of their donors. Now they can go back to those donors a second time and asking for more. And so Adam Schiff in particular is actually very excited about it. So are Lee and Porter having two elections, getting a double fundraise. You know, it's funny how we want to get money out of politics, but money is a big part of politics and, and it's built and baked into the system. Um, it, it's, it's also interesting to learn a little bit more about who she is. Now, according to um, Newsom and a lot of other, you know, fans of LaFonza Butler, um, she's both black and lesbian and is uniquely positioned to take on the cultural purge by Republicans in America. Newsom said, arguing that the GOP is launching an assault on the LGBTQ and black communities. Okay, um, that's true to a degree. I, mean, I think we can debate the degree of that. Um, but again, just selecting someone based on our skin color and of their sexual preference just, again, seems very weird to me. I mean, we, we should be combating gender discrimination, sexual orientation discrimination, race discrimination by making finding ways to find neutrality, <laughs> not by having discrimination, but in the other direction. Um, now, the California Teachers Association loves her. Um, and she, they, uh, they said, quote, she's a true change maker, a strong champion for labor unions and public schools. Now, that is what I would expect a Democratic governor in a Democratic dominated state to use as justification to appoint her. Not that I necessarily agree with, you know, a candidate that is backed by the teachers union, but at least there it makes sense, you know, in terms of policies. Um, and, but there is one interesting caveat to this is that she doesn't even live in California. 
She used to live in California. Apparently, she still owns a house in California, but her permanent residency is in Maryland because she works on a um, a nonprofit call. I think it's called Emily's List, which advocates for um, uh, what does it do? It, it's I know it, it advocates for the disadvantaged, but I don't remember the specific categories. Um, but she doesn't even live in California. You would think that would be one of the primary qualifiers to get this job. I mean, we all talk about representative democracy, representative government. Isn't the whole point to have people that represent you that are people from your community? But apparently this doesn't matter. I mean, we saw the deal when Hillary Clinton ran for Senate. Suddenly, right before she announced her campaign, she had this beautiful home in uh, New York. And everyone's saying, well, you live in New York and, you know, but she strategically purchased there right before the election. So she could claim to be a New York resident. But even here in San Diego County, uh, you know, if you go out to um, East County, uh, the I don't know what district it is, but it's the district that covers El Cajon and Alpine and a lot of other parts of East County. It's the only red district that we have in San Diego County. That's Daryl Issa's territory. And Daryl Issa doesn't even live there. As far as I know, he still lives in Vista. And remember, his opponent was Carl DeMaio, who also didn't live there, who actually lives in Rancho Bernardo, last I checked. Um, So it's odd that to qualify to get on the ballot, you don't even need to live in that district. And here we're seeing the same thing. So now the interesting question is, is that does this give her an advantage Because she has not ruled out running for the special election in March or in November. Now, again, I like to compare this to my hometown in Poway because we had a similar controversy where we've had multiple times over the last 10 years where city council people have resigned. Um, The most recent one being um, Barry Leonard. And then there's always this debate. Should the city council fill the spot with an appointment or with an election? And ideally, you do it through an election process because then the people can pick their representatives. But the criticism here in my hometown of Poway is that the city council has always appointed them. And then they end up running in the next election and have the advantage of incumbency. Well, this time, um, when Barry Leonard stepped down, the city council heard those objections and said, OK, well, we're going to get them to sign a pledge that they won't run in the election. And so uh, Anita Edmondson, who's taken that job as the appointment, has agreed not to run. Now, again, I don't know how how legally binding that really is. But ideally, they would be placed by an election. And and to me, one of the, you know, we talk about the purpose of government being public safety, number one, and infrastructure, too. But elections have got to be right near the top of the list as well if you want to have representative democracy. So often one of the reasons that they choose we in Poway here to choose not to have the election is apparently because of the expense of it. Well, in this particular case, they're not creating a special election. So they're having the regular primary election, which is already budgeted for. They're putting this in at, for the temporary, for the two-month window. And it's weird how an election in March, that won't go into effect until August or September. I guess maybe they have to verify the vote and it takes a while to do that. But at least the good news is, is they're they're using the democratic process to the best of their ability, short of having a special election. Um, Ideally, they would have a special election, but they're not. Now they're just going to do the appointment. So what do you think? I mean, what do you think of LaFonza Butler? 
Is she the right person for the job? Number two, is the fact that she's a woman and black and and a lesbian, does that make a difference for you or not? Or should it make a difference? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care what skin color or gender or sexual orientation my representatives are, as long as they implement policies that I agree with. You know, I don't really care about what political identity group they say they come from, but a lot of people do. To them, that's critical. So what do you think of LaFonza Butler, number one? Number two, do you think her race, her gender, and her sexual orientation matter? Number three, do you think that she should be eligible to run in the the election coming up? What are your thoughts on that? Let me know in the live chat on Facebook or on YouTube. Okay. Wow. We're covering a lot here on the John Riley Project. We're at 56 minutes. I still have my community forum, the San Diego community forum I want to get to. So let's jump in right there. We've got some social media comments, but if you have a question or a comment, you can type it in live in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. I'll get you involved. And the first comment here, this is from DP who responded on YouTube to the video I did on the $20 per hour minimum wage for fast food workers, which has been approved and signed into law by Gavin Newsom. And DP says, does not make any sense. Entry level, non-skilled workers, $20 an hour. John, I have to agree with your points. This would end tipping for me. Yeah, I, I really objected to this as well. Now, I, in general, object to the minimum wage law in the first place because it makes a lot of entry-level jobs illegal. And, you know, we should be encouraging more people to work, to start a career, build skills and experience so they can start earning more money and developing a a long-term career. But by raising minimum wages, you just increase the probability of hiring less people or replacing them with robots or with automation. But the other part of this I didn't like was the two-tiered structure of it is that fast food workers have their own special minimum wage where everyone else, if you worked in retail, if you worked in, um, you know, in an office environment, if you worked in any other part of the economy and made minimum wage, you wouldn't make $20 an hour. You'd only make $15.50. Again, inequality before the law. I think that's bad. But it is interesting, the angle here about tipping. Now, I have... I have so dramatically changed the way I tip. I remember I did a whole podcast about this about two, three years ago. I am very, very generous now as a tipper. I used to be a curmudgeon for a good part of my um, early adult years because I was like, why do we have to tip and how much should you tip and which job should get tips? I don't like this. And the price should just be the price, what you pay, and then they should just pay the workers what they what they deserve. But My daughter at one point was a hostess at a restaurant, and she was able to keep the tips for people that took the to-go orders. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think about that. Number one, I never realized people tipped on to-go orders in the first place. But then my daughter was making more money because otherwise she was just making the minimum. And I thought, interesting. And and that really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that maybe I need to be tipping to-go workers. And now I do. But the other part of this is, is that people were always saying, well, we need to have a living wage and our minimum wage, whatever it is, whatever it was, is not a living wage. And and so I, I that's why I decided, you know, with inflation and with this clamoring for higher wages, I said, you know what, I'm just going to reward good service. So I don't just tip 15%. I will frequently tip 20%, 30%, sometimes 
to the person that cuts my hair, 50%. You know, and, and I will, Uber drivers, easily 20, 20 25%, I'll tip. Um, restaurants, almost never below 20%, unless the service is poor. And even if the service is poor, I will never tip below 15%. But for restaurants, often 20, 25, sometimes 30%. I've become much more generous with this. Now, I wonder if people are going to change their tipping behavior. What do you think? Okay, moving on down the list. This is from Glenn talking about the government grocery stores in Chicago. And Glenn said, but the plain facts are we've tried this solution before and end up to the present day. We've let the free market have it um, inside cities. And it was the free market that exasperated these problems. So I don't understand how you, well, first of all, they're talking about how the grocery stores in Chicago are moving out because of the crime and the homelessness and all the riffraff that it's happening around their store. And so now the mayor of Chicago wants to put in government-owned grocery stores. He says, um, and, and Glenn says, the free market that exasperated these problems. So what I don't understand is how all you far-right puppets <laughs> um, can get up here and talk about um, um, how apocalyptic things are when the government runs things for the better. Wow, free markets decide to extort an area for its resources. A government-run grocery stores, LOL, all what they do is reinvest in the area. They have an incentive to reinvest in the area. What do you have to say about that? Well, I have a lot to say about that. Okay, first of all, I am not a far right-wing person at all. I mean, I am pro-gay rights. I'm pro-abortion. I'm not just pro-choice. I'm pro-abortion. Um, I'm, I'm for more immigration. I'm for making legal immigration easier. I am for our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And depending on the policy, sometimes I align with people on the left. Sometimes I align with people on the right. And sometimes I align in the third place and disagree with both the left and the right. Because I actually believe in freedom and liberty. Um, in this particular case, the reason that these stores are moving out is because government is failing to do the number one job that local governments should be managing, and that's public safety. If there is crime rampant in the city of Chicago, and apparently there is, there's crime rampant everywhere. There's a lot of theft going on in retail. Even in San Francisco, has gotten so bad that Walgreens has been moving out a lot of their stores there. But the government, the local city government should be cracking down on crime. Now, I'm not necessarily one of these, you know, thin blue line, hardcore, you know, uh, um, rule of law guys, because I think a lot of the laws we have on the books are BS. Um, but fighting burglary and theft, yes, that's a reasonable and proper role of government. If they were, if the, if the Chicago city government was properly managing crime, then they wouldn't have these private stores moving out. If the city of Chicago was addressing the housing crisis, which I, I'm not sure if they are or if they're not, but if they have a large homelessness population, that means they're probably not addressing homelessness. They're probably not allowing enough development to occur. And, and because that's what's happening in California. I mean, why are we have seen so much more homelessness? You might say it's drugs or it's mental health, and that does play a role. But the number one reason for homelessness is the fact that they can't afford housing. 
And the reason they can't afford housing is because there's so little available housing that there are bidding wars and landlords and property sellers can get top dollar. And they can do that because there's very little new development going in. But here, should government step in and run grocery stores? I said, no way. I mean, you might, he's accusing, Glenn is saying that when, when the free market ran it, well, first of all, there is no free market, particularly in Chicago that is so heavily regulated. For the longest time, the mob was the one that was, you know, influencing and ruling parts of Chicago and playing a huge role in, in elections. It's not a free market. A free market would have no government interaction unless if rights were violated, like theft or burglary or murder or rape or assault or fraud. Those are rightful roles of government in a free market. Free market's not anarchy. Um, but in this case with Chicago, the, 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 the private grocery stores were already investing there. They already spent money to set up stores. They already invested money in bringing all this inventory into their stores by paying all of the workers in their stores, by paying sales tax and property tax and all the other excise taxes that were required of them by the rule of law. This, the private companies were already paying and investing in their community. But because the city government failed to manage crime, they said, screw this. I mean, we're not getting a return on our investment. And so they moved out. And you can't blame them. So if the, fe- if the city government comes in and sets up shop and has government-run grocery stores, does that necessarily mean they're going to solve the crime, the theft? No. What they'll probably end up doing is having taxpayers subsidize all those losses. So I think this is the wrong way to go. I mean, Chicago should just – local government should stick to the meat and potatoes. Police, fire – Ambulance, that, and that can be private or public, the ambulance part. Um, and then public works, infrastructure, roads, sewer, water, you know, that's the proper role of city government, not getting into the grocery business. Okay, here's another interesting comment. This is from the Cast Mighty. And boy, I did that video on the California bullet train and poof, it blew up on YouTube. I had so many comments, so many views. And the Cast Mighty commented uh, and said, If this is ever completed, you know, which is kind of the running joke, if it's ever going to be finished, frankly, they haven't even laid any rail yet. Um, By by that time, autonomous vehicles will probably be perfected. Autonomous vehicles are promised not only to drive the car, but to do it at greater speed and safety. So you will be able to get in your car in Glendale and take a nap while your robot car blasts along at 90 miles an hour. You'll arrive at North Beach in San Francisco in about four hours. Uh, four hours later without the stress of driving. And wow, you'll still have your car and your stuff with you. Um, Or you can drive your car to a bullet train station, go through security, wait for the train, then end up not in North Beach in San Francisco, but in Emeryville. (laughs) That's what the cast mighty was saying. I was saying you're going to probably end up in Livermore or Gilroy. And then you're going to transfer to BART to get to the Embargadero. And then you'll have to take a bus or an Uber to get to North Beach. And there's no way you can do this in four hours or less. This I 100% agree with. And that's why I wanted to present this comment from the cast mighty. This bullet train boondoggle is over budget. They haven't even, I mean, it's like five times over budget. They haven't had any portion of this line functional. I don't even know if they've laid rail. 
they're building all this infrastructure for this, and they're struggling. And, and, and when they finally get this first phase done, it's only going to be like from Fresno to Modesto or something like that. And to get from downtown San Francisco to downtown L.A., I mean, there's just no way. And it's going to be way faster to use a plane or, in this case, like you said, a, uh, self-driving EVs will be perfected by them. Here's another comment on the bullet train. This is from uh, <laughs> CrackRacka241. And I had made a comment how I like policies where people that use it pay for it, pay for what you use. And if you don't use it, you shouldn't have to pay for it. Because that's one of my criticisms of mass transit is they want to tax car drivers. You've been trying to get this mileage tax through here in San Diego. Thankfully, that was that was blocked by Sandag. But they want to pass taxes on sales tax, on gas taxes, on mileage taxes to tax people that don't even use mass transit to pay for it. What they should do is just charge people the appropriate price to use mass transit and let the people that use it pay for it. But uh, Krakaraka said, uh, didn't agree with me and said, quote, not paying for something you won't use. It sounds simple enough, but how does it work for you? Getting people to use bicycles and public transit will benefit any car driver since there are less people using the roads and have less traffic jams. People don't know what they need. They haven't got a clue. (laughs) This is insane. This is basically saying the people don't know. So we're going to let government officials, they know the better. They know what's right for us. This is like Plato versus Aristotle, Plato not believing that the people could understand their reality, the people could make decisions for themselves. They had to have a philosopher king, some other person that was wiser to make decisions on behalf of the people because the people were unable to manage their own life. That's essentially what Krakaraka is saying here. And, you know, will people on mass transit and on biking help relieve some of the stress on the roads for car drivers? Yeah, of course that will. But not in any significant amounts because the percentage of people that bike or use mass transit is tiny. And even if it built out this whole system, it would still be a very small fraction of the total amount of transportation use. And here's my my quiz for you. If you're ever driving around San Diego and you see the trolley, you know, the red MTS trolley go by, or even if you see Amtrak or um, the, the coaster going up and down the coastline, look inside the car and roughly speaking, try to figure out what percentage occupancy it looks like it has. Every time I've seen the mass transit in San Diego, you get the same is true of buses. Rarely is it above 15 or 20% full. It's usually maybe less than 10% full. And the only exceptions to that rule is if people are going to some big event, whether it's a, um, used to be street scene in, in the gas lamp, but you know, if they're going down to Petco or if they're going to Viejas to see an Aztec basketball game, yeah, then the trolleys are a lot fuller. But most of the time, they're barely even used at all. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people have this romantic uh, fascination with trains. It's just crazy to me. Uh, going down the list here, uh, here's a comment from, from, uh, <laughs> about the bullet train, but he, this, this person invoked Thomas Sowell, who is one of my favorite economists. And I love Thomas Sowell. He's kind of, um, I guess, uh, part of the whole Mil- Milton Friedman, um, 
you know, Chicago School of Economics. And he he's still an author. He's in his 80s, if not 90 years old now. He's just still keeps on going. But this comment was from uh, TL and talking about the California bull train and says, they will never stop this. You know, they meaning the politicians in Sacramento. According to Thomas Sowell, quote, no one will really understand politics until they understand that politicians are not trying to solve our problems. They're trying to solve their own problems, of which getting elected and reelected are number one and number two. Whatever is number three is far behind, end quote. The politicians get huge campaign donations from the construction unions, whether it is for building a bullet train or housing for the homeless. And he says, you expect Gavin Newsom to kill the golden goose here? He, well, he is so right. And if you understand that, that the, the, the number one thing the politicians want is power. And, then, and, they, and they can only have power if they're elected and continuously reelected. So they don't not necessarily want what they think is best for society or what they think is best for voters. They will only pick the things that they know will help them get reelected. That's the main point. And so here, yeah, I mean, the bullet train had 53% voter approval, but it was only for a certain number of billions of dollars. And now it's become, they've spent more and more and more. They're way over budget, way behind schedule. He wouldn't want to kill the bullet train because there's so many people that love the idea of the bullet train, even though there's no clue on when this thing is even going to be functional, much less the vision completed. So, of course, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like um, our local city councilwoman, Marnie Von Wilpert, you know, talking about, well, we need housing for teachers and firefighters and the police. Well, she only invokes that to try to get those emotional heartstrings to have people understand that she's, quote, for the common good and therefore try to get those voters to support her. It's not necessarily that she wants that particular project. Same is true here with the bullet train. Um, Another comment here about the $20 minimum wage, and this goes to automation. And this is from Yes Indeed 3751. And Yes Indeed says, I live in Chicago and have been to... This is crazy. This is a San Diego podcast, and we already had a couple of comments from people in Chicago. I live in Chicago and have been to restaurants with no humans whatsoever. I'm a business owner. If I can get a robot to maximize profits, I would no questions asked. It's just evolution. It's just business. Sorry, folks. That's why we became entrepreneurs in the first place. I love and respect all my staff. If a new product came along like a robot for my industry, we would keep our current staff and have them manage and never hire again. Robots are the future and will be desp um, despised, but is what it is. If you do a monotonous job that requires little skill, you will be replaced. Make yourself irreplaceable as an individual and, and learn a skill that won't be taken over by a computer in the short term. Hallelujah. 100% agree with this particular poster, too. Yes, indeed. I agree with yes, indeed. Um, automation is inevitable. Um, automation is going to be pursued whether it's they raise the minimum wage or not. But raising the minimum wage just incentivizes them, accelerates the path for more automation. So, of course, they're going to have automation. I mean, even restaurants have dishwashing machines because they don't scrub everything by hand. Um, and and we, I mean, we can go down the list. I mean, there's so much automation in farming. I mean, 
used to be most people in America worked on farms. Now less than 1% work on farms, yet farms produce more food than they ever have um, because of automation. So, of course, businesses are going to pursue automation wherever they can. And you, you can't blame them for that because they're trying to provide a service to their customers and they're trying to do so at a profit. Um, and, yeah, in this age, the the um, the burden is on each individual to manage their own career. And if you're in a job that looks like it could be obsolete in five to 10 years and you need to take responsibility and take control for your career and have skills that can't be replaced. That was like one of my objections with the UAW fighting against this law to require a human in self-driving semi-truck 18-wheelers, which was crazy. And apparently Gavin Newsom, I think, signed that into law, did he? I'm trying to remember if he did or not. I think he did. Um, and that's ridiculous. That's you know a Luddite move trying to preserve old jobs fighting against technology and progress. And there's a lot of people that are fearful of automation. Automation is ultimately going to make our lives better. Automation is going to make our jobs easier. Automation is going to free up a lot of human uh, capital, a lot of financial capital, and a lot of brain power to go out and create new industries with new jobs that are going to require intelligent human beings to do problem solving. This is, I mean, think about it. Are we better off with... um, Automation in automotive? Are we better off with automation in um, agriculture? Are we better off with dishwashers and washing machines? Of course we are. Our lives are better. And so the same is true here. And I got one final comment in the San Diego Community Forum. This is about the whole, um, not really a merger, but a partnership between the San Diego Yellow Cab Taxi and Uber here in San Diego. And um, I had commented how I thought this was a win-win-win, win for the, certainly a win for the passengers, you know, a, a win for Uber and a win potentially for the Yellow Cab guys as well, getting access to all the Uber um, requests. And Joel Ferrer commented and said, as an Uber driver... I definitely think the Yellow Cab partnership is going to ruin my earning potential. The app is already oversaturated with drivers, and this is going to make it even worse. This isn't a good thing for the drivers, only beneficial for passengers who nowadays never tip, LOL. Rider share has become a joke of a job. Okay, there's a lot in there as well. Okay, so... He's already an Uber driver, and now, yeah, the San Diego Yellow Cab guys are going to be out there looking for drivers on the same Uber app. So it creates a more competitive environment for the Uber driver. That's true. But see, that's what a lot of people don't like. A lot of people want to prevent um, competition, or in this case, prevent cooperation amongst companies because they want to protect their job. Now, I get it. You want to protect your job, but you've got to be able to adjust to the changing conditions that are out there in the marketplace. And if more people are jumping in to that career and, and it doesn't work for you, then the right thing isn't to stop progress. The right thing is, 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 to, take, is to find a different career that you can make more money. Now, I'm a huge supporter of Uber, of Airbnb, all of this kind of sharing community, whether it's 
ride sharing or home sharing, you know, where people can monetize their assets. People can have supplemental income. In the case of Uber, people can have a side hustle. I love that idea to supplement your, your income or to have temporary income when you're in between jobs or if your life circumstances have changed because of family issues or whatever, you can always still do this and do Uber driving. And yeah, and as an Uber user, as a, a person that will use Uber from time to time, it's good for me too, because now when I summon an Uber, there's more likely they're going to get here sooner rather than later, because now either a yellow cab or an Uber car will come. Does that make it more difficult for Uber drivers? Potentially, yeah. Yeah, it probably will. But on the other hand, this could work out better, because if there are more taxis that are available, it might encourage more people to use Uber and taxis, and therefore there will be more demand for that service because they're getting such great service. You know, imagine hailing a cab and having it pick you up in five minutes or less. People will say, this is great. You know, I don't have to drive. I don't have to pay for $6 a gallon gas. I don't have to pay for crazy car insurance. I might not even need a car in the first place. And then maybe I can go rent one of those uh, those brand new um, you know townhomes where they have minimal parking because I don't need a car. And suddenly everyone's lifestyle can change. So this, this actually could have some upside. But it is funny how he said that nowadays people never tip. That's, that's a bummer. Um, people should tip, especially for Uber. I mean, we've heard the stories how Uber drivers, if you break it down on a per hour basis, don't make that much money. And especially when they have to consider the wear and tear in their car. And that's true. That's a fair point. So... Again, I, I like I said, I'm a big supporter of the concept of pay for what you use. And if you're getting good service, pay for it, you know? And that's why I'm, I'm in the school of, I tip generously. Um, and I, I feel good about that. And I feel like I'm rewarding the right people for the right kind of quality of service. And I'm also putting my money where my mouth is on supporting um, a lot of these uh, side hustle kinds of jobs and like whenever I travel, I like to use Airbnb. Now, when I travel with my wife, she generally likes hotels because they're more predictable and hotels often will have that breakfast in the morning and, you know, and, and there's no crazy rules and, and Airbnbs have gotten more expensive. But still, I will always use Airbnb if I'm traveling by myself because I support property owners, and I love the whole idea of them monetizing their asset. Number two, I love how some Airbnbs are very creatively designed and decorated, especially if it's a granny flat or an ADU. Um, I will rarely ever, I think I've only once used an Airbnb to rent a bedroom in someone's house. That's always very awkward to me. I like to have the whole place to myself, whether it's an apartment, a condo, a townhome, or even a house. And to see some of these folks really go out of their way to create a sort of cool vibe or energy in that particular Airbnb, give it a lot of personality. And I love that. And if it costs me a little bit more, I prefer that. It makes my stay so much more interesting rather than a generic hotel room. Um, and, you know, and you get a lot of variety. I mean, I've, I've stayed in Airbnbs on on dude ranches in Holbrook, uh, Arizona, um, I've stayed in, uh, gosh, I mean, places in suburban neighborhoods in Albuquerque. I stayed in a, uh, another one in Albuquerque that was like a old traditional, um, 
Adobe Hut kind of a style of a of a um, of a housing unit. It was just like one giant room with a bathroom, but it was that classic old Adobe look in Santa Fe, and it was decorated really cleverly. Um, I've been at Airbnbs in downtown San Francisco, um, some that have these amazing game rooms. Some I was at one in um, Tucson that was fully decorated in University of Arizona Wildcat gear. I mean, including the shower curtain and the neon light in the, in the apartment. It was really cool. As a sports fan, I really appreciated that. So I'm big on Airbnb. I'm big on, on um, Uber. I love it. Um, it's all good stuff. So tell me what you think. Um, you know, you can respond in the social media comments. Um, you know, this podcast will be repurposed in multiple ways. I have the live stream, which is this full hour and 25 minute or so segment. Then I, I'm going to break these up into pieces. You can comment on those on YouTube. And then I also do some short verticals on this that I like to post on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and on TikTok and Rumble and a lot of other sites. So you can respond there as well. So um, if you'd like to learn more about the John Riley Project, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. And there you can see all of our previous episodes. Um, you can see some blog articles, ways to, to follow on social media, ways to get on our mailing list. Go to johnreillyproject.com. If you'd like to support what we're doing, you can make a financial donation. It's voluntary. You can donate five bucks, 10 bucks one time or do it every month if you like. Um, and if you support what we're doing, you can support me uh, to provide it for you. Just go to johnreillyproject.com. Okay, friends. I try to do this every Wednesday at around 12 noon. And today I was pretty darn close to getting it right off on time, maybe just a few minutes late. So thanks for joining me. This is John Riley. This is episode number 328 of the John Riley podcast, John Riley Project podcast. Go out there and have a great day. And we'll see you later, friends. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.